0: When I had started the the Lulu threads, I remember when I was reading them out loud, I wanted to speed read them to get to the kata section. Oh, yeah. And that, as you know, as a writer. It's a signal. It's a signal. So I always tell young writers, I'm like, just try to read it to your friends. You're going to know your internal editor is going to like turn on in a way that you've never heard it before. And you're going to realize the parts that are not working.
1: I'm Jordan Kissner, and you're listening to Thresholds, a weekly series of free-ranging conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterwards. Quick note. I, Jordan, am taking a brief break from hosting this spring to work on some other projects. And while I am off-mic, we are really lucky to have Mira Jacob occupying the interviewer seat. Mira is a novelist, a graphic memoirist, and an all-around brilliant mind and excellent conversationalist. She was our very first Thresholds guest, and I have never stopped wanting to listen to her talk. I also was excited by who she wanted to talk to for these shows. I'll be back later in the spring, but until then, Mira's got the host mic.
2: I recently interviewed Angie Cruz for the launch of her completely absorbing, gorgeous novel, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. And afterward, her publishing team, being like nice publishing people, thanked me. And that's when I shouted, it was like interviewing The Sun, which on the one hand is so embarrassing and on the other is just true. Because talking with Angie feels like you are seeing the world around you in perfectly crisp color as you gently and thoroughly question your place in the universe. (laughs) It's like this amazing quality she has, the way in which she is connected to people, the way in which she is connected to stories. And one of the things I most love about her is her combination of experience and curiosity, because her first book, Soledad, she put it out in 2001. And then there was a good, you know, more than a decade. Um, she, she wrote a second book. And then there was like a more than a decade between that and her third novel. And in that time, there was so much work she did to figure out who she is and how to be. And I think that is the thing that telegraphs from her in every direction. This idea of who you could be and how you could be.
0: Maybe you don't know this, but I was a fashion design student. I studied fashion design at FIT. Um, I was there for four years. And I remember thinking that I was so original and creative. And I go into my design class and my professor says, "Um, okay, everyone, I want you to come up with the most original, interesting thing you could come up with. Um, design and bring it to class next week. And I thought, you know, yeah, oh, I got this. And I showed it to class with my design, very proud of it. And then she had us put all our drawings um, on the board so we can look at what we all came up with. And I would say like most of us had the same idea. Wow. And she said, okay, now you understand That all the ideas you have that just come from the top of your head, you know, that you think are so brilliant and original, Uh (laughs) are just derivative of everything you're all watching in your generation, all doing in your lives and all the magazines you're watching. And now I want you to take this very original design that you think you came up with and make 100 drawings, changing one aspect of the last drawing you just did.
2: Wow. Wait, I have to question. Do you remember? the outfit that you designed do you remember loosely what it looked like
0: i did it was asymmetrical it had i had this idea i love pockets and at the time very few outfits had pockets by the way you know and now everything has pockets like we've discovered pockets are a necessary um <laughs> design feature for dresses they're very important especially if you're carrying your phone um but back in the day there were very few pockets so i came up with this like apron pocket idea um But then, but, you know, interestingly, other people had a desire for pockets. So a lot of them, (laughs) (laughs) there just needs to be this desire for pockets, which it makes you also understand how need creates a a kind of inspiration for design. Um, But the interesting thing is that I I was so upset because then now I had to sit down and come up with 100 drawings. And I thought it was such a waste of time. I thought, what am I doing? I already know what I like, I want to do what I want. And but changing an aspect of each drawing made me go deeper and deeper into my initial idea and really thinking outside of the box, like what else can happen in this particular garment. And you know, when I'm writing and when I'm teaching, I always tell my students the same thing. I'm like, what else can you change about the work? So I feel like, you know, with all my work, but, you know, in particular with um, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, which is my most recent book, I wrote a version of it. And then I tried a number of other versions of the same story. So I could get closer and closer to the thing I wanted to say, which I didn't even know what that was, right? Because I think writing in the end answers a question that you don't even know you have when you you get started.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's so it's so interesting when you say this is when you were doing those iterations, do you remember if the the kind of the knowledge that it was that it was helping something? Do you remember how many versions it took for you to get that, to understand that that's what was happening?
0: No, I don't remember. But I just remember that during the time that I was in fashion design school, I hated it. I was miserable. I felt overworked. I felt like they had me doing many things that I didn't want to do. I wanted to learn shortcuts. And I see this frustration. (laughs) You know, the difference between being, I guess, a younger artist and like someone who spent more time doing it is that there is no shortcut, right? Like you just have to put in the time.
2: Do you find that this comes up now when you're teaching?
0: Yeah, I think all the time. I think that And I think with writing more than anything, you know, I was raising a child who was invested in sports, who was invested in music. And one of the things that was really difficult to instill was like, if you don't play the violin every day, it's never going to sound great. It just won't. Right. But somehow in writing, I think there's this idea that you could just write out of nowhere and have no discipline and no practice and it's going to sound great. I'm not saying that you have to sit down and write every day. I wouldn't even. I mean, I'm not that person. I don't write every day. But I do think the practice of writing happens in the ways that you notice things in the world, take note of things, listen to people speak or tell story, Um, the way you watch TV, like all of this could be part of your writing practice, right? But it's an intentional practice of, you know, like thinking and narrative and sort of honing in how to see and think and, and, and put words together. And I feel like, um, in every other discipline, it seems like that's a no duh. Um, and I think in writing people are just like, I have a great idea. Boom, 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 you know, and they'll just start working and you're just like, ah, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. Like, is it beautiful? Uh, oh, I don't know. Only because you could build a chair and it's not going to fall apart. doesn't actually mean it's beautiful to look at, or I want it in my house, you know?
2: The thing that is so interesting to me about what you're saying is there's a kind of there's a lack of preciousness, right? I mean, that's what I, when you're saying this to me, what I'm feeling, if I'm if I'm kind of putting myself in the position of one of your students, is this is one iteration of a thing that you will keep doing in a million different ways. Therefore, this one you don't have to kind of protect with your life, right? There's a kind of there's a flexibility that you're asking for there.
0: Yeah, and I think kind of a generosity with your own ideas in mind, right? Like you could look at it and say it's a work in progress always and sometimes you have to let it go because it's as far as you can take it with the level of maturity you have or even your skill set, right? But I do think, yeah, like you you do have to just look at it and say, OK, this is a process and I'm going to put in time and care and attention and love in the same ways that we want to be treated. People want to be treated and nature wants to be treated. I think that our work deserves that love. Um, and um, And I think once you accept that it's not about like a goal, you know, one of I think the greatest teachers for me was reading you know, a work, a reading works by one writer, for example, that I love, right? So I read all of Tony Morrison. I mean, as much as of Tony Morrison that I could at any given time, I read like up until certain book, which was the last book by Tony Morrison I read. Um, maybe a Jazz, I don't know. I think probably that was the last one, but I read as many books as possible. And then I did the same thing with James Baldwin. And what I noticed is that they keep coming back to certain ideas, right? and questions and and issues that they care about, right? In particular with James Baldwin, it was really interesting to see because I actually read um his work in a linear way, right? from "Go Tell It on the Mountain" to you know, the other books that came right after them. And I was like, "Oh, yeah. like he kept trying at something over and over and over again and sometimes it was just you know like i loved his um book just above my head which most a lot of people that i know haven't read it yet but um i loved it because in some ways it felt like a culmination to all these different books that he had written and then i and you know and that for me was a great teacher because i was like oh yeah like this is what we do we keep writing it's 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 our own personal journey readers don't need to know that we're going through this journey but we as writers know that one book is just a book in the process of us trying to understand something bigger for ourselves.
2: Right. So there's both, it's also on a kind of micro level. It's that you are writing one version of a book that then you will keep iterating on to get to the version that maybe you'll publish. But then looking at that in the context of your work at large, you're in a kind of, it sounds to me like what you're saying is you're in a kind of constant conversation with yourself, trying to get a a question that's sort of moving you through all of your work Is that what you think is happening or? Yeah, totally. Am I getting that right? Yes, yes,
0: yeah. You know, I feel like in some ways this book, How Not to Drawn in a Glass of Water, was a return to my first book, Soledad. You know, definitely um, thinking about how oral storytelling has informed my work in a way that maybe I wasn't really um, thinking about it when I wrote Soledad. I just thought it was my voice. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have this voice. And I was just <laughs> employing this voice in my work. But now that I'm a more mature writer and I have a, more control over how I use my voice, um, I'm realizing like how much I learn through the oral storytelling being told in my family. So in some ways, like it was like a return to the ways that I was working um, as a younger writer. But again, doing it in a very new way. Um, And that's really
2: exciting. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how this, when we're talking about how not to drown in a glass of water, I've talked to you a little bit about it before, but I'm so, one of the things that is so immediate and pressing about this book is the voice and the urgency behind it. And did it come to you that way? Like when we're talking about the book that you started with versus the book that you ended up with, how did it present itself to you?
0: Well, you know, I started the book in 2017 um, during um, the Trump presidency when I personally had found it the most scary. It's so funny because I just, I was listening to Gia Talentino's book, um, Trick Mirror. Mm-hmm. Is it Trick Mirror? Yeah. Yeah. Trick Mirror. And I was listening to it and she also wrote that book during that same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, I wonder if there's correlations between all these books that were written around that time. Well, we were all feeling this kind of despair about where our country was heading, but also incredibly um, these feelings of disempowerment and like something has to change. And so November 2017, I remember it very clearly um, because I was in New York City visiting my family and um, I was about to take the train and I couldn't sell my last book, Dominicana. It had been four years of it circulating um, and receiving rejections about how great it was, but there was no market for it. And I and there was this call for immigration lawyers to go to the airport JFK to help with what was being called the Muslim ban. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I should just study law. I would be so much more useful in society if I changed my life and became a lawyer. Um, And I saw this woman um, in that crowded. Um, platform holding this kind of manual. And, you know, she reminded me a lot of um, some of the my neighbors and tias and grandmother, who all got laid off during the Great Recession, and who had to start their lives over. And they were only in their late 50s, early 60s. And, you know, I was just like, what would it look like to start your life over? And literally, I guess I was asking this woman to tell me something about herself, but Cara Romero showed up and basically said, My name is Cara Romero. I came to this country because my husband wanted to kill me. And I said, maybe I'll never write a book that will ever get published again, but I'm going to listen to this story. And I took out my phone and immediately started, opened a Google Doc and immediately started answering questions,
2: listening to Cara and asking her questions. Wow. Okay. So you're in a space where you have one book that's out in the world. And it was out, did you say four years? Yes.
0: I had been working on it for almost 10. I had started that book in 2005.
2: Wow. So that's out and that's getting rejected. And then this voice comes to you and you start writing it down. I'm so curious about that because I feel like so many times when I'm feeling scared about my work, it's hard to make work in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel I'm so fragile I'm so curious about what it was in that moment for you.
0: Well, you know, for me, like one thing that has been true about my practice is that when I start giving up on the work or frustrated, or I guess what people call writer's block, I don't know, you know, (laughs) I, um, I usually turn to something else. And, you know, when it was Soledad, I was painting a lot. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but I painted for pretty much up until my 30s. Um, Pretty much every day, I was painting and drawing as not as with a goal, just for pleasure. And um, with Soledad, I remember working on the book. And when I would get frustrated with it, I would just start painting. Um, And then the writing would get jealous. It would get incredibly (laughs) jealous. It would be like, why are you ignoring me? And I think that that's what was going on in that moment, right? Like, I think something like that, where I was like, I'm going to quit. And it's something inside of me where the writing is like, no, you're not going to quit. I'm going to, I'm showing up for you. This, you know, divine intervention happened with Cara Romero. And, and I had to create rules for myself because I actually felt like, you know, part of my frustration with writing is that I couldn't, like you said, I couldn't find inspiration. I couldn't find, um, I was full of despair. I truly can't remember A moment where I felt more at a loss um, than that particular moment where Trump was president. And now, in retrospect, I realize, you know, the bullying reminded me a lot of trauma that I experienced as a child at home, and um, and I gave myself a constraint. I said I will only listen to Cara Romero on the train when I'm on a train, when I'm commuting, either on a train, on a bus, or a plane. And I always worked on it on my phone for the first draft. So, imagine it was like
2: a game, right? Some people play Wordle. I was playing the game with Rara, Rara Romero, and <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, but it only works when you are in transit. Yeah, well, I made that constraint because I figured if I could, if I didn't put any pressure on
0: myself at all, then it would be fun again. Because you know, the truth is that writing wasn't fun anymore. I was really like, I felt. Um, kind of beaten down by the, the feedback I was getting for the Dominicana and also beaten down by the feedback I was getting about what it means to be an immigrant in the United States. Like, you know, and I felt like will will we ever be treated well here in the United States? <laughs> like those images of kids on the border, like they were just so, I was very afraid for many people that I love. Um, We were questioning what a citizenship um, at the same time, there was a lot of um, a lot of things going on in Dominican Republic and they continue to happen on the Haitian Dominican um, border in Dominican Republic where Haitians are and were in dramatic numbers being deported and their citizenship were being stripped. And I feel like all of that combined just made me feel very scared. So I had to find a way to have fun with the work and believe that storytelling still matters to me, even if it didn't matter to anybody else. In the same way that my grandmother, my grandmother's spinning stories in her kitchen. She's not trying to get published, but those stories, you know, they're pretty good.
2: (laughs) Well, they keep you in the kitchen too, right? They keep you talking to her. Oh my
0: God. It's incredible, right? Like I'll go visit her, you know, just to drop off something and suddenly I'm sitting down having coffee, listening to something and then suddenly I'm there staying till dinner and she continues to spin the story so I won't leave, right? And I think in some ways that's what we want. The best storytellers know how to hold our attention.
2: this thing that you were most afraid of, right? This the kind of the world that is crushing in on you in several different levels, both the writing and the immigration sort of conspired to bring you this exact voice, which is actually telling a story which is pretty harrowing in parts, right? Carol Romero's story is, she's hilarious. She's juicy. She's funny. She's gossipy. She's great. But also her story isn't necessarily an easy one.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult, um, I mean, I think like, I don't know how, again, I feel like there's a magic that happens to writing that I don't want to understand too much because then in some ways I'll try to replicate it. But I do feel like Cara Romero um, has this incredible kind of, and I speak to her, like if I speak about her as if I didn't create her, but I did, I did create her. So it's in me um but i think she has this quality of being both infuriating but also like really likable um because in some ways like and i mean i think that's where the craft comes in right where you start working really hard to complicate your character in a way where you're like what they're doing is so messed up but then you show enough contradiction in those actions to sort of like allow us to see like that all of us do terrible things but we're also doing great things maybe some of us don't do great things but a lot of us I think (laughs) both hold flaws and beauty and you know and negative and positive traits and and I feel like um the voice um of Gara like she came to me one way and then as I spent time with her throughout the years like a lot happened between the draft and what ended up being the book yeah. Well, you know, the draft initially was just her answering job interview questions, Um, all the questions that we get asked, like, um, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And, you know, um, initially, you know, she would answer in one way and I would have to keep asking her questions. I'm like, no, come on, tell me the truth, Gada. (laughs) And then we would go (laughs) deeper, right? Uh But sometimes she wasn't able to tell me her truth. So then I would have, I would, I wrote the novel from different points of view where I would spend time with other characters telling Gara's story.
2: When she wouldn't tell you her truth, wait, what did that, what do you mean? Like you would ask the question and nothing would come back?
0: Yeah, she would always be staunchly herself in a way. Like, I am strong. Why are you asking me this question? There's no weakness. I have no weaknesses. You know, what I did was right. you know, um, in the same way that I think, you know, because I actually um, spent a lot of time asking these questions to random people to see how they would perform those questions, right? Because a lot of times when we're asked those questions, we're on the defensive, especially when we're applying for a job, right? Or we're being, you know, or we're trying to impress somebody. And I realized, well, I don't have the entire story here. So the way to get to her story, I wrote, From the different points of view of different characters. And through those other characters, I got to know God in this entirely new way, right? So now I have all this writing that in the end wasn't as strong as some of the initial work that I had done with her voice. So I had to return to a draft or rewrite the book using her voice, but then incorporating everything I've learned about her through. The eyes of all the people that are in her life.
2: When you're in the middle of this process and you've decided, actually, I'm not getting answers from her. I'm turning to these other voices to see what's what they say. Did you in that in that moment imagine and this will be the book? The book will be her voice, and it will also be these other voices.
0: No, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a draft which I thought was going to be the book that was told from her neighbor Lulu. You know, she has this neighbor Lulu who, uh. Cara Romero talks a lot about, um, and in one iteration of the book, Lulu was telling the story. And what we see now um, of the monologues was like a transcript of something that was left behind of Cara. Um, But what ended up happening is that when I would talk about, you know, I, this book actually was born. A lot of it was, made or created as something that I would read aloud to friends. Um, you know, people I had very specific people that were very invested in Gara Romero's life and they would say, Oh, what's up with Gara today? And <laughs> in some ways I feel like this book, I feel so grateful for my community who still cared for me because even though the publishing industry did not care about me, <laughs> I felt that there were people in my life that really hung on to this story in a way as like just an interesting Story to listen to. And sometimes I would write for these friends. I'm like, I'm going to tell you something new about kata. And I was writing toward sharing it. And when I had in, um, started the, the Lulu threads, um, I remember when I was reading them out loud, I wanted to speed read them to get to the kata section. Oh, yeah. And that, as you know, as a writer, it's a signal. It's a signal. You're like, why am I? Sp- why am I, you know, sometimes has this ever happened to you when you're reading work in progress in public and you suddenly want to skip a whole paragraph?
2: Yes, completely. Absolutely.
0: And I'm like, that is your sign. Right. So I always tell young writers, I'm like, just try to read it to your friends. You're going to know your internal editor is going to like turn on in a way that you've never heard it before. And you're going to realize the parts that are not working. And I knew that the parts that were working were got, was Kara telling her own story. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like, I'm just gonna, you know, the truth is that I wrote a book that doesn't look like any other book I've ever read before. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was insecure. If I could get away with it, like telling a story just through monologues and documents. Um, but I, in the end, I was just like, you know, yes, I think I could do this. And I was very fortunate because I have an editor who really supported that vision. There are many very different stages in writing a book, as you know. Like One of the reasons I need help maybe to stop is because I love so much revision and research that I could lose a lot of time there. It's a, it's a pleasure space, right. And anything that feels pleasurable, you just want to spend all your time in it. Um, And I have to remember there are other books, you know, I could just use all that research and put it somewhere else. I don't have to put everything I know inside any given book, but this particular book, um, as far as community, like I love to share because I think that a lot of people think, and I don't know, a lot of people I know think that they have to be isolated to write. And I do think it's very useful for me. In fact, I do most of my writing at writing residencies or when I, you know, do self-imposed writing retreats, but it's been really helpful too, to have, you know, captive listeners who are who are excited about the work. So, you know, I do have some people that are like, really want to listen to what I'm doing and they're not writers. And that's really interesting, because they're readers. And they're just excited. They're just excited to hear a good story. And then they'll ask questions, or they'll see connections. And and I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that's something I hadn't thought about. And I'll bring that in. But I love this story about my son. So the last two weeks of the book, I read it out loud constantly, because it's a monologue, right? So and I wanted it to sound as musical as possible. Especially because very um, late in the game, I decided to change the syntax from being Cara Romero speaking only in Spanish to um, her speaking ESL. And that meant that I had to change a lot of prepositions and I had to shrink the vocabulary. So there was a lot of choices I had to make last minute. And when I did that, um, I had my son um, hanging out, right? And he was like, mom, I want to watch a movie. Mom, I want to do this. And I was like, oh, don't you understand? I have a deadline. I have to hand this in. There's a paper shortage. If it doesn't go out, it won't go to press. I was like, he did not understand the gravity of the situation. And he would just lay on the sofa while was reading it out loud, right? And I didn't realize he was listening. I thought he was scrolling through the phone. And in one scene, I was reading the scene out loud. He goes, mom, no. Because goes, you need to change that part. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, if you let that character do that, you make it impossible for anyone to forgive her. Wow. And I was just like, what? You know, and I said, finally, all that media literacy I did with him <laughs> is paying off. But it was interesting because then he would give me um, examples from his reading interests, which are mostly Marvel and DC comics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And suddenly I was like, Oh yeah. What does it mean to be a villain? What does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to have sequels and plot points and all this? And it was really great because we were able to just talk about just how to keep the story open and not just shut it down really quickly and, um, and that happened because I let, he was there and he was listening. Right. I had another occasion where, um, a friend right at the end, she came and read the book back to me. She's an actress performance and she happened to be an ESL speaker. And really I thought I was doing her a favor by telling her, yeah, you could come uh, hang out with me for the next two days. Cause she needed an escape. And, and I said, but you know, that the only thing I do right now is work on my novel And she's like, okay. She shows up and she goes, well, can I help you? I'm just sitting here. And I was like, well, read it. And she started reading the book. And I realized, oh my God, you're a performer. You're an actress. You're perfect. And that gave me an entirely different reading of the book. So I do think you can incorporate community. I feel like this is not an unusual experience, anywhere else in the world, right? But I do think the way I was taught was that somehow writers are lone figures, you know? Um, which I don't believe that's true. Not for me, anyway.
2: I mean, uh, one of the things that this is making me think about is the way that... So you're talking about the iterations of the book before it goes to press, right? Um, and the and the work and the and the kind of way, the nature of art, where you're doing another version and another version... Do you feel like going out in the world with it has presented you with even another version? Because this is a dialogue, right? And people react to it so specifically.
0: Yes. I mean, I am so surprised by the reception of the book in the way that I feel like um, what I realized, unlike my other books, which I, well, I would say with Dominicana, because it's the most one that the one that I have the most recent memory Dominicana is told in a three-act structure. The story is pretty conventional. You know, someone arrives. You know, they're coming of age. Um, s- certain things happen. They're all cause and effect. This particular book, which has like um, lots of different plot points, like a lot of things are happening, but they're not happening in a linear way. She's kind of moving through time. The only thing that's happening in linear in a linear fashion is that she has to go to these. Twelve sessions, right? Um, and in it, she's telling her story, and then interspersed are these documents. Um, so what that has done is that readers are coming at the book in very different ways. Like they're coming at it wanting to talk about what does it mean to be estranged from your family when you tell them when they think that you're queer or they know that you're queer. Um, what does it look like to be thrown out of your apartment? What does it look like to be insecure about your housing? Um, What does it look like to mother in a different way than your mother mothered um, and feel so in conflict with it? So this book kind of is bringing
2: all these different responses that I didn't anticipate. I'm curious. I'm curious about because the place that this came from was 2017. I was also writing a book in 2017 and being scared about um, my immigrant family. I'm wondering if you read it to if you've had the experience of reading it to any rooms that would not be accepting of Cara Romero. I'm curious if you've read it into any spaces where the spaces that would have made you nervous in 2017 would have made her nervous now.
0: Well, you know, I just read it at Texas Book Festival for the main gala. I was a keynote speaker and I decided to read the novel to a predominantly white, affluent, Texan um, audience. And um I didn't think about it as much as I did once I was on stage and I started reading Cara Romero. And I thought, oh, wait, maybe they think, you know, I don't, you know, I'm an ESL speaker, like, you know, because I'm reading it as a monologue. But also I was thinking, oh, Cara Romero is someone that might be working for them right now. And everything she said suddenly had this weight in the room that I had not experienced before I didn't, you know, I don't know um, how it lands on their end, but I do say, I do have to say that while I was in Texas, um, I met many, many people who would talk to me, you know, all kinds of different kinds of people who would say, you know, oh my God, when I read I thought about my relationship with my daughter, right? And, you know, <laughs> And it made me think we should be reading this book so we could talk about my grandchildren. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, so the book is hitting, it's not, sometimes I have a defense mechanism about what the work is going to do, because I still have a lot of healing to do from the ways that I have witnessed my people in my community being treated in the everyday life. But what I realized is that books do something that we have no control of, Right. So in some ways, like the way that I sometimes want to protect someone like Gara, like it's not the way that I actually need to protect her or if I even have to protect her at all. She's pretty clear about what she thinks of what she wants, right? So it's been surprising in that way too. Like sometimes I have a defense and I think you're not going to get her, you know, you're going to presume her incompetent because she has an accent, you know, and then I'm like, oh, actually that's not how someone read her. So I'm also trying to be better and more generous with the readers. I'm not saying they're not readers that won't get it um, or might dismiss it completely. But I also think that transformation comes from us being more open to finding the ways that we could become better allies with each other across all our differences.
2: I guess one of the things that was just coming up for me with kind of the last thing that you were talking about is the way... The way when you make something, there's the um, the iteration of kind of, of the way it lives in the world and then how that speaks back to you as an artist, right? So you've made several different books now. You've done several different works. And I'm wondering about how that keeps you in conversation with yourself. So if you were looking at this, for example, at this work, just in the overall, not even The the iterative process of this draft, the next draft, the next draft, bringing in the new characters, taking them back out. But now also this experience of having her out in the world and hearing those conversations. How does that affect your work going forward?
0: Um, You know, I try to what's really I don't know if this happens to you, Mara, since you're a writer, too. But like once the book is published, I'm almost surprised that I wrote it. Like, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I wrote that interesting, you know, and the farther away I am from the moment it's published, so the more weird it seems that all of that happens on the page, right? So when I start a new book, I, I feel just as lost as I did at the beginning of any book, which is, I don't feel any smarter or better at it at all. I kind of feel like dumbfounded on how a book comes together in the first place. But I like that feeling. I like being in the space of this, this unknown kind of unpredictable space. Um, Because if I knew what I was doing, or or I felt like I knew exactly what I wanted to write about, like, I would be bored instantly. It's like being in a conversation with a person, if I could predict what you're going to say, I have no interest in talking to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It feels like a chore. And I think that when I think about books, right, like, Uh, everyone's saying it's, it's kind of like so delightful when people read your book and they'll say to me, like with how not to drown in a glass of water and they'll say, Oh my God, this book was so healing, you know, or, or, Oh my God, this book made me think about, you know, Uvalde and security guards. And I'm never going to think about security guards in the same way again. Now I'm thinking of Cara Romero. I think, wow, that's really powerful and amazing, but it feels very disconnected from me. You know, and from my process. Now I'm in a process where I'm starting a book and I'm kind of like, who are these new people? I want to get to know them, you know, and I and I have to become invested and care about them. So
2: eventually I could write characters that other people could care about. You were saying earlier about this, you write a book because you are asking a question, right? You're asking Mm -hmm. a question that you sometimes don't even know what the question is until you've finished it. Do you know what the question was? for how not to drown in a glass of water? Do you know that now?
0: I think that a lot. (laughs) I think the book in itself, um, I think it kept changing. I kept discovering, oh, I didn't realize I wanted to talk about this, right? So for example, like, you know, some people ask me, well, did you feel estranged from your mother? And, you know, and I thought, you know, like, I didn't realize it, but I was tapping into my emotional autobiography from when I went away to college and it felt like I had broken away from my family. All my mother wanted was for me to go to college. This was the most important thing for her and for me to get a job with benefits. It was like a very typical um, immigrant dream um, for me to have security. And when I left and I came back right with this new consciousness, I went to SUNY Binghamton to study English literature. And I came back with a consciousness of like, you know, that so many of the things that were happening in my, you know, in the conversations in my family were homophobic and racist and, um, you know, and sexist. Um, I was, I came to the dinner table, always in attack and constantly on the defense. And I really was, it was like a canyon between me and my family, like they were shut down around me. And they would be like, no, because the educated one is here. And I, it was, you know, in retrospect, I realized, even though the book is about a totally different thing, I realized I was tapping into some of that emotional, you know, story that I had with my family and that estrangement that I had and how it keeps happening, right? Like every, you know, everyone says, yes, this is the dream. You know, when you move different to a different class you know when you make different choices about who you date all of these they do create a polarization and um and it's very painful um and I think that that was one of the things that I didn't realize that I was initially going to be writing about but in the end the book really did
2: become about this about bridging a way back to understanding your family Mm -hmm. yeah and how through the book they're becoming closer to me
0: Like my writing, it's particularly Dominicana, but this book too, my family, they feel closer knit, like more closely knit now because we're reading the book and we're talking about things that we might have not talked about before. Intergenerational trauma, um, feelings, having feelings. Cara Romero is like, I have feelings. Do I have feelings? Should I feel? It's a huge, big thing (laughs) to say. It's okay to feel.
1: Thresholds is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Ashwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelei Grossman. Special thanks to our hosts at Lit Hub Radio. You can find more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you next week.